Do you remember briefly when the brontosauruses weren't real anymore? Yeah. They were like, no, they're actually like what? Brachiosaurus? I looked this up one time because I didn't want to be another Pluto situation (laughs) where my hopes and dreams were just ripped away from me. But yeah, no, it's definitively like its own species of dinosaur. I always liked it. I thought it was like. Because, you know, giraffes are like my favorite animal. So I always I always enjoy giraffe of the dinosaur world. It is. I really <laughs> enjoy those really long necked, awkward looking animals. Everybody and welcome back to our podcast, How Real Is That Science, where we attempt to confirm or refute the legitimacy of science within pop culture. I'm Nicole. And I'm Natalie. We're scientists interested in science communication. But we don't claim to be experts on the topics we're going to discuss. We have, however, done our research, and that's the important part, folks. Always do your research. Well, everyone, it's fall. Ugh, finally. It's the most wonderful time of the year for us here. And how real is that science? (laughs) Spooky season is our favorite time of year. I just, I can't even pick my favorite thing about fall. I love it so much. I am so excited that we're finally moving into spooky season and colder weather and cozy blankets. And I'm going to stop now. Okay. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty excited too. Uh, Because I can finally make everybody watch horror movies with me. Mm -hmm. And we're kicking off spooky season with an episode about a truly classic movie, Jurassic Park. I love this movie. I know. It's one of my favorites. I was just saying when we were watching it that I think I've seen it probably 20 times. Mm. So why did you pick it for this spooky season kickoff episode? Okay. So obviously dinosaurs. (laughs) dinosaurs can be scary they can be and two when i first saw this movie i was pretty young Mm. and it really scared me the dinosaurs looked way too real and i thought i was gonna get eaten by a dinosaur so i thought it'd be a pretty good start because it's kind of scary but it can be scary if you look too close at the dinosaurs, it's going to be scary. <laughs> and obviously this movie is, what, like 28 years old? So, as always, spoiler alert, but we don't feel that bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen it by now. And if you haven't, you should watch this movie. It's really good. Okay. So Jurassic Park was released in 1993. It was directed by Steven Spielberg. And it's based on a book of the same name by Michael Crichton. It stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, and Lord Richard Attenborough. The movie follows these scientists as they explore a dinosaur park and chaos ensues. So first we're going to talk about the science, though, because we are a science podcast. And this movie (laughs) actually does have quite a bit of science in it. Yeah. So let's start with dinosaurs themselves. Okay. Because obviously, even if you haven't seen Jurassic Park, and you should because it's good. You probably know it has dinosaurs in it. As of 2021, there were 1,554 known and described species of dinosaur. Interestingly, that shakes out to be about 50 previously unknown species a year or about one Mm. new species a week. So now some of the dinosaurs that you see in Jurassic Park did not exist in the Jurassic period. 
No, most of the dinosaurs that you see in Jurassic Park actually existed in the Cretaceous period. So dinosaurs first emerged in what's known as the Mesozoic Era, which included the Triassic period from about 252 million to 201 million years ago. The Jurassic period followed from 201 million to 145 million years ago. And then it was followed by the Cretaceous period, 145 million to 66 million years ago. Yeah. And so these are basically broken apart by like spots in evolution, right? When a lot of new species came to be or. Yeah. And there were some small extinction events that happened at the ends of these periods, except for the Cretaceous period, which had a large extinction event. Yeah. It's, just, it's interesting because I was listening to you read them. And why would you put it all years? hundreds of millions of years ago? It's like, oh, yeah, like these three things right next to each other, but they're each like 50 million years long. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like, they're, I feel like describing them, sometimes they can seem like these little slices. It's mm -hmm. like, why were these slices made? But they're actually big chunks. Big things happened yep. to delineate them and all that kind of stuff. So during the time that dinosaurs evolved and became extinct, the giant landmass known as Pangaea also split apart, moving towards the continents that we know today. So dinosaurs belong to a clade known as archosaurs, which includes crocodilians, dinosaurs, and birds. As dinosaurs evolved, their anatomy included longer tails, stronger muscles, and improved hips. They also were most likely warm-blooded, unlike the cold-blooded lizards that they were initially thought to be like. The Jurassic period included dinosaurs such as the brontosaurus, who are in the movie, and stegosaurus. Whereas the Cretaceous period included some of the most famous dinosaurs, such as the T-Rex, Triceratops, and Velociraptor. Around 66 million years ago, which is insane to think about, mm -hmm. an asteroid collided with Earth in the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. This impact in the Chicxulub crater led to massive destruction near the site of the impact. It also led to wildfires, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, acid rain, and earthquakes. Just minor, minor inconveniences. Right. Um, so the hot dust from the asteroid hovered in the atmosphere, raising global temperatures for hours after the impact and blocking the sun for years after the impact. We talk about the science of how this kind of event can affect global temperatures in our episode, How Real is Geoengineering? So large animals like the bigger dinosaurs couldn't seek shelter from the impact, but smaller animals could go underground or hide in trees, which would help them survive the heat blast. Blocking the sun with dust caused a nuclear winter, cooling the planet, leading to even more death. So the dinosaurs either died or they stayed alive and continued to evolve. <laughs> right. So scientists have discovered that not all the dinosaurs just died. Like you said, some evolved into birds. And we see this as a direct evolutionary link between these species. Not only did they evolve into birds, but dinosaurs probably didn't even look like lizards. In fact, many of them had feathers. Yes. So this was discovered before the movie came out. But according to the scientific advisor on the movie, Spielberg wasn't a fan of the feather idea and thought that they weren't scary enough. And I mean, honestly, if I was being chased by a ginormous bird that wanted to eat me, I would be terrified. <laughs> I mean, you're pretty scared of birds, so that doesn't track. And I, I don't find birds scary, but larger birds that are not dinosaur large, like ostriches and emus, to me, kind of terrifying. They're a little right. too fast, they're a little too big, and their faces are a little scary. Yeah, well, they're so, coming to kill you, that's why. I think on the scale of a dinosaur, 
there's like you know cute fluffy feathers and there's like scary predatory feathers like it could right. it could have worked right but i can understand that many people may not be scared by giant feathered dinosaurs even though we would be so <laughs> especially if you think about that's not what people expect of a dinosaur right they would be too hung up on this movie isn't what dinosaurs should be and they wouldn't absorb any of the plot right exactly they'd be like that's not scary that's big bird <laughs> that's big bird which i would be like oh my god that's so scary it's big bird <laughs> all about those inflections once again exactly so these are the creatures that the scientists in the movie are dealing with, right? You got your T-Rexes, your Velociraptors. In Jurassic Park, the scientists use genetic engineering to actually create dinosaur clones from ancient DNA found in mosquitoes preserved in amber. There's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. The first is mosquitoes in amber. Right. So amber is fossilized tree resin. As they state in the movie, sometimes small insects, lizards, and frogs can get trapped in the resin as it drips down the tree. Paleontologists, which are scientists who study the history of life on Earth through fossils, study amber because it often contains complete species. So that's pretty realistic that they're going to see things in the amber. But getting DNA from mosquitoes trapped in amber over 66 million years ago, that's a different story. Right. So first, DNA isn't usually preserved well in amber. DNA starts degrading immediately following an organism's death. And even if the organism still looks perfectly preserved, it continues to degrade over the next couple million years on a scale we can't see. Right. So basically, even if they got DNA out of the mosquito in the amber, it would be so mixed with insect DNA that you wouldn't know what the dinosaur DNA is to clone it out. Which now I'm just thinking about a mosquito or dinosaur sized oh, mosquito. God, that'd be so scary. That's not how genetics works. We'll get to that. But <laughs> plus, yeah, you would need the entire genome of the dinosaur. So basically everything that makes the dinosaur the dinosaur. Right. And that's not been found ever. Right. Because it gets so degraded. Mm -hmm. Even if you're going to get any DNA out of that, it's going to be the equivalent of having like a tooth. Mm -hmm. And Scientists nowadays are actually trying to clone an extinct mammoth from DNA, which is way younger than a dinosaur. Mm -hmm. That DNA is only about a million years old. I mean, which is still crazy. People, we have about five movies that tell us not to do this. Right. So mammoths may not be human eating animals, but they could still cause a lot of damage. I think they're massive, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're bigger than our modern elephants, I'm pretty sure. Right. So they can cause a lot of damage. Yeah. I mean, and I'm I'm prone to the philosophy of you're putting something here that doesn't belong here. You just can't ever expect everything. Oh yeah, exactly. You don't know how it's gonna react at all with any of the things that you have now. Yeah. yeah. I also want to say in Jurassic Park, they have ancient plants from millions of years ago. Yes. So where are they getting this DNA? Were the mosquitoes like vegetarian? <laughs> where are they getting the DNA? <laughs> right. I mean, you could have plants also trapped in amber, but it gives you the same problem of the DNA is likely to degraded to actually bring back that plant species and you have the added issue of gestation like right like sure if you have the dna we know how to 
start a mammal. Right. Plants are different. Right. Where you, you just go put it in a seed. Like what kind I of guess. seed? Yeah. I don't, I don't, even, I don't know. even know. Yeah. So, okay. Let's say by some miracle, you have found dinosaur DNA in amber and it's not mixed with mosquito DNA. You would then need to read and characterize all of that dinosaur DNA, which would have holes in it. So you have to fill the holes. You can't just put all of the DNA together and hope to get something out of it. In the movie, they use frog DNA. Frogs are not close relatives to dinosaurs. No. Even when you're thinking dinosaurs look like reptiles. Frogs are amphibians. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to know what made Michael Crichton pick frogs. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I love frogs, so... (laughs) But yeah, the evolution of frogs really took off after the asteroid even made an impact. So they're totally separated in evolutionary space as well. Right. So that means you have your reconstructed DNA. So it's got frog and dinosaur DNA in it, which may not be anywhere near what a dinosaur's DNA would look like. How do you know you're going to get anything that's going to look like a dinosaur at the end of this process? Yeah, so we'll go over the molecular genetics that allows scientists to mess with DNA in a minute. But let's say you do it. You have your dinosaur DNA, you mix it with another organism's DNA, and you're ready to grow the dinosaur. You can't just stick the DNA in any organism. You have to incubate the DNA in a living egg, preferably in something that's close to dinosaurs. As we were saying before, can't be a frog. It's not close enough to a dinosaur. We don't actually have a living organism that can fit that description. We don't have anything close to a dinosaur. It's been so long. It's been way too long. (laughs) For example, when the scientists try to grow a mammoth clone, they can hypothetically use an elephant to fill in the gaps of the DNA and then artificially impregnate a living elephant with that DNA and it hypothetically, could be more successful than we would expect this to be with dinosaur DNA. So let's back up a little bit and talk about molecular genetics, cloning, and DNA. As a refresher, DNA is a molecule that all living organisms have that contains all of the genetic information for that organism. It's made up of four bases, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. And these all pair together to make the actual information code yeah and you'll see this a lot of times in movies is just a lot of c's a's t's and g's right all strung together as a weird block of letters that makes no sense (laughs) (laughs) and dna is used as the written information to create rna which is very similar which can then be used to make proteins who do the actual work inside of all of our cells Right. So your DNA isn't actually doing work. It's just like your when you make a table from Ikea, it's your written instructions. Mm -hmm. It's the instruction manual. And this is what's called the central dogma of biology. And it only goes in one direction. DNA makes RNA, which makes proteins. It cannot go backwards. So your RNA is not mixing with your DNA to make anything happen. Mm -hmm. And so this makes DNA extremely important. Right. 
The study of genes is known as genetics, and now studying DNA is known as molecular genetics. It looks at what binds DNA in the cells, how DNA interacts with other molecules, and the general structure of DNA. Which is that famous twisted ladder look. Right. So one of the most famous findings of molecular genetics is the determination of the structure of DNA in 1953, credited to James Watson and Francis Crick. They determined that it has that helical structure, that weird twisting ladder, using extremely important and informative data from Rosalind Franklin and Maurice Wilkins. They could not have done this without these two scientists. The structure of DNA is important for inserting and removing sections of DNA because essentially it has to be like a puzzle piece that fits correctly. Correct. And in the movie, they don't go very deep into how exactly they quote unquote fill these holes and choose what puzzle pieces are going in from the frogs. But with the frog DNA, there are a couple of different ways scientists could do that nowadays. Gene splicing is the method of actually recombining DNA molecules at very specific junctions in the helical ladder. This can be done pretty easily in the lab by two techniques known as PCR and CRISPR. PCR, or polymerase chain reaction, is a method of amplifying or creating a lot of DNA and in this technique, it takes all of the minimum things that a cell needs to read that DNA code, and then you can add in new bits of code that will get incorporated by the cell to do what it needs to do. Right. And so you can introduce new DNA this way, say from a frog. You can take a little bit of that and put it in between where you think there's a gap in your dinosaur DNA. Right. <laughs> Can't say it with a straight face. <laughs> So you're getting the hybrid DNA, right? You're getting the recombined DNA. You have part frog, part dinosaur, because PCR lets you put in new DNA. Mm -hmm. And this is used all the time in research labs to introduce mutations in DNA or to just really amplify specific genes of interest. And we've both actually done PCR in our careers as scientists. Yeah, it's not my favorite technique. <laughs> I personally do not have the hands or the luck to do PCR properly the first time around and to get it to do what I want it to do without it taking weeks. And it it's just really aggravating to me. <laughs> I really don't like it. I enjoy it. It's it's simple and I don't, it's it's nice to have a simple technique that does something so useful. Well, and it works for most people all the time. <laughs> but it also doesn't work for a lot of people. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes DNA and protein just doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And they just misbehave. They just don't do it. <laughs> and you're like, why are you not doing it? And it's like, I don't know. Yeah. Cause. Yeah. You haven't figured out why. Good luck. Yeah, exactly. It's like, good luck trying to figure out. <laughs> They're so sassy. <laughs> so the other widely used technique in molecular biology is CRISPR-Cas9, also known just as CRISPR. CRISPRs are short specialized sections of DNA, and Cas9 are the proteins that actually cut the CRISPR DNA, similar to molecular scissors. It was originally adapted from a defense mechanism in bacteria and archaea, which can use this CRISPR-Cas9 system to defend against viruses and other foreign attacks by chopping them up. Right. And it has since been adapted to use on any region of DNA, which has opened the doors for introducing or deleting any gene a scientist wants to inside that organism. 
which is really insanity from a research point of view. The possibilities for this technique are endless. Yeah. And it, being so recently discovered, like this was something in our scientific careers. Right. Lifetimes. It was like 2012 we're, Yeah, was when the papers came out. Yeah. And just to see how it's exploded mm-hmm. in uses. I mean, I have an undergrad that I supervise who's doing this. Right. I attempted to do this in yeah, my first year of grad school. It's really, really cool. And yeah, it got this recognition. So in 2020, two scientists who determined the mechanism of CRISPR were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, Doctors Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna. So interestingly, they were not given the U.S. patent for this technology. That was actually given to scientists at MIT. It's been some interesting drama in the scientific community, but really the focus is on how we can use the technology for future science at this point. So the movie may use something similar to these techniques to actually create the dinosaur frog DNA. But nowadays, scientists can actually use this to research human genes, determining which ones can cause diseases and what to do to create therapies for these diseases. There are a lot of ethical dilemmas associated with manipulating genes using CRISPR and to some extent bringing back organisms that are extinct. Scientists have proposed cloning extinct animals from the 20th century, which usually have gone extinct due to human intervention. We also have a lot more genetic material to pull from. For so those. it would be a little easier. Yes, it would not be Jurassic Park in replica. <laughs> right. So right now, most of the instances of genetic manipulation in humans is limited to somatic cells. And these are cells that contain DNA that's not actually passed down to future generations of cells in your arm, for instance. Yeah. So it's not making, quote unquote, designer babies or preventing disorders before you have them. As of 2016, the diseases that were corrected using this type of technology included stick fibrosis and cataracts, which does pave the way for other truly devastating diseases to be cured through genetics. And it doesn't stop at human health. CRISPR technology has been used in the agriculture and food industries to create crops that have improved yield, have better nutritional properties, and tolerate drought better. This is really important as the climate around the world changes and the levels of food inequality between the richer and poorer countries becomes more wide. As we mentioned before, though, like most technologies, there are some serious ethical considerations to think about. Editing the genes of cells that are in the germline, for example. Yeah, so these are the cells with information passed on to other generations. Is it ethical to make changes for your baby without their consent? Right. Because you bring in a lot of eugenics sort of things. Do you Mm. want your baby to have blue eyes or blonde hair? What about the size of their nose? And you can actually decrease the diversity of your population, which is not only super gross from an ethical standpoint, right? But it can also have devastating ramifications in future generations. Yeah. So recently, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine came out with a report that has recommendations for genome editing. The report covers several criteria that need to be met before germline editing clinical trials can go forward. In addition, editing the genome for non-germline applications can continue, but needs to be limited to treating and preventing diseases or disabilities. And we should point out that the National Academies do not make policy. They can only suggest, based on scientific evidence, and lobby or policies that will be made. Right. 
So the report recommends, quote, genome editing for enhancement should not be allowed at this time and that broad public input and discussion should be solicited before allowing clinical trials for somatic genome editing for any purpose other than treating or preventing disease or disability. In the U.S., heritable germline editing is not allowed. However, if the restrictions on germline editing are removed, the report suggests several criteria that should be met before clinical trials can start. They include, one, an absence of reasonable alternatives, two, restriction to editing genes that have been convincingly demonstrated to cause or strongly predispose to a serious disease or condition, three, credible preclinical and or clinical data on risks and potential health benefits, four, ongoing rigorous oversight during clinical trials, five, comprehensive plans for long-term multi-generational follow-up, Six, continued reassessment of both health and societal benefits and risks with wide-ranging ongoing input from the public. And seven, reliable oversight mechanisms to prevent extension to uses other than preventing a serious disease or condition. Yeah, so that's, that's a lot to unpack, right? But what's important is that scientists are seriously considering the ramifications of genome editing before they do it. And to quote Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, they were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Right. As scientists, we generally try to stay above it, talking about how, like, how pure science is and it isn't our fault if people do bad things with it. But we do need to become more involved. Science does not exist in a vacuum or a bubble. So what is the verdict on Jurassic Park, though? It is a fabulous movie. <laughs> I love this movie. And the science is, like, fairly solid. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that we didn't even get into. Like, there's a lot more really good science in it, too. Oh, yeah. The whole series has some great discussions on paleontology and dinosaur behavior. And there's actually things about what the dinosaurs are doing themselves, which is pretty cool. I personally would have enjoyed more information on how they did the actual gene engineering of the dinosaurs, because I think that's really exciting. But I get why they didn't want to put that's probably not exciting to the <laughs> average person. <laughs> but it's not a completely outrageous plot premise. I also want to point out that real velociraptors were actually much smaller than they are in the movie, which I would find scarier. They're like the size of dogs based on fossil evidence, and that could hide much better and jump out of nowhere much better. Right, because they're the size of humans in the movie and you know, if that, that thing's giant, you know, you're going to see it wandering around. Whereas something that's like dog sized, you might not see that. And that's scary. Mm -hmm. So with that <laughs> uplifting, ending, <laughs> it's spooky season. Thanks for listening. And that's it for this week's episode. We're always ready and excited to talk more about our episode topics. So let us know what your favorite dinosaur is in the Jurassic Park series. Or not. Or not. What's your least favorite dinosaur? <laughs> These are the things we want to know. The burning questions. <laughs> we love to hear your thoughts on each episode. So find us on our social media. Okay. We're on Twitter at HowRealSciPod. Instagram at HowReal underscore SciPod. And our website, anchor.fm backslash HowRealIsThatScience. You can find us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we'll be back soon debunking common urban legends. Fun. Find out next time with How Real Is That Science?
at one point in the movie, um, Hammond is asking everybody to come in for lunch. And he's like, we have chili and sea bass. And I thought he was saying chili and sea bass. Chili and and sea, sea bass. bass. Yes. So chili in a bowl mm-hmm. and sea bass. In a bowl? I don't know. Like, was it was it sea bass chili? I don't know. Ooh. I was just like, I was like, that is such a weird combo. Who would want that? It could be a thing. Don't knock it until you've tried it. I think it would not taste good. I guess I it mean, would depend on the kind of chili. Right. Like, if it was like Texas chili, I think that would taste horrible. Not Texas chili. Texas chili and sea bass together. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Our 2% Texas audience is about to riot. <laughs> 